Well, good morning, church family. I wanted you to take your copy of God's Word and find the book of Exodus. And if you'll find the book of Exodus, I'd like you to find Exodus chapter 17. Some of you have shared your head cold with me. Thank you. Uh, but bear with me as I try to do the best I can with my voice this morning. I may not be able to be as loud or as long, and this is when you should not break out into applause. <laughs> I've already got a face that's hurting. I don't want you to damage my fragile ego. Exodus chapter 17, and I want you to find verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. We've come to the end of this third series in the book of Exodus called Get Out. As I have reminded you over the last few weeks, the name came from Pharaoh's command to Moses, get out, leave. And we've begun the activity that dictates the name of the book. The book is Exodus, meaning to leave. We go out. I often remember it by the exit signs above the door. Exit means to leave, and if we all left, that's us. Exit us. We leave, and they're leaving Egypt. They're heading to the promised land. But this journey, as we are going to find out, is so much more than the covering of geography, than the navigation of miles, if you will. In fact, what we find in the book of Exodus is that in addition to a real story <clears throat> of real characters that happened, it's also a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Remember that I told you not to forget that it can be both. We are given the Old Testament stories of real people in real struggles so we can find ourselves in them. There's a reason why God inspired the scriptures, the sacred writings that we base our faith on to preserve these epic journeys. They are factually true. They did occur. But if they just remain in history, we miss so much of the significance because Exodus is the picture of the Christian life. Before you come to know the Lord, you are enslaved. You are lost in your sin. This is what the New Testament would teach. And then God redeems you. You don't save yourself. You don't win your own freedom. God saves you. To save a slave from slavery requires a payment, a redemption, an atonement, another theological word, a propitiation, a payment. And, of course, we know that their payment, of course, came in the back-breaking curse of the tenth plague, the death angel. And the way they escaped the judgment God had on Egypt was to be covered by the blood of lambs. And this, of course, is a foreshadow of how someone is released from bondage and slavery of sin, to be covered by the blood of the lamb. It's why Christians always celebrate the blood of the lamb. But being released from the bondage of sin doesn't mean we escape the journey of this life. When I was saved, I certainly was forgiven of my sin. So I was released from the power of sin, but I was not released from the presence of sin. I live in a sinful world. I still live in a sinful body. I still have a sinful nature at work in me. It does not any longer have to rule or reign, 
but it's certainly present. And so I am on a journey, as you are, those of you who know and love the Lord, to walk in obedience to him, even though at times it might feel like a wilderness. And one of the things we find that God is going to do in this journey is that he's going to teach amazingly true principles for every Christian's life. Now, I don't mean that we take the book of Exodus and we just reduce it down to life truths and principles and try to treat the Bible as just a, an instruction manual. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal to us our God and his redemptive plan. But his redemptive plan is based on his wisdom, and his wisdom is designed for you and I to live out. And one of the greatest areas of need in our world today is leadership. There is a vacuum of leadership. There is a vacuum of leadership globally. There is a vacuum of leadership nationally. Our country is weakened because of poor leadership. We see people fail us on the civic level, social level, we fail one another at times by not leading ourselves or our lives. And so when a woman emerges or a man emerges who decides that part of the call of God on their life is to become an effective leader, influence begins to happen. And so in the end of chapter 17 and then most of chapter 18, I'd like to preach to you a message this morning simply entitled Kingdom Leadership. Now, it really is three accounts and if you'll walk with me briefly through the first two, we'll get to the third one because all of them have something to say related to leadership. The first account is really about kingdom battle. No sooner had God provided manna and water do we see in chapter 17, verse 8, that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, here's what we're going to find. From the point of leaving the Red Sea, to the point of inhabiting the promised land, Israel will find itself in conflict. Now, the conflict that they are fighting is against the nations who have rejected God, they're pagan, and they do not want to see Israel inherit the promised land. There is this idea of the presence of holy war in Israel's history codified in Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible teaches this. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But listen to what the law says. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. Notice not the snipers, not the heavy artillery, the priest. And shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. Why? For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now, it's very important that we understand the difference between the conflicts in the world today and what's illustrated here. This is really a discussion of holy war. Were there times in the formation of God's people where God would say, you're going to do battle against enemies who hate you and hate me, and when you do battle, I'm going to give you the victory? Yes, there were. The truth is, is that every army that amasses all over the globe, even today, 
at some point will pray for God's favor, but we know that one army will prevail. So it's important for us to not assume that every battle we may find ourselves in is a righteous battle. But Moses and the Jews were in a righteous battle. And the interesting thing about the battle is, when they fought on their own, they did not win. When they fought with the God's power, they won. And it's this famous scene that brings to the focus Moses' staff again. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put him under it and put it under him. And he sat down, or sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, we've seen the staff be the symbol of connectedness to Yahweh from the very first time Moses is called. Remember at the burning bush when Moses says, well, you got to give me some sort of power. I mean, how am I going to show up? I mean, is there a business card? What, what do I need to do? And God says, Moses, throw the staff down. And when he threw the staff down, it turned into a serpent. He picked the staff up and turned back into a staff. He told Moses, touch the river. And the Nile River turned to blood. He told Moses, hit the rock. And he struck the walk, rock and water came out. And so the staff came to represent that Yahweh was with us. There seems to be in the text, according to some scholars, the idea that the lifting of the staff connected the man of God with the throne of God. And so Moses holds the staff up on the hill as Joshua fights, and as long as the staff is raised toward the directions, direction and the allegiance of Yahweh, then the army prevailed. But the minute Moses' hands grew weary, you don't think it's hard? Try to hold a golf club or a baseball bat above your head for a few minutes. After a while, you'll start to burn. You'll switch hands. And then this one will start to burn. Then you'll try to do one of these numbers, right? You may even walk up against a wall, right? Any of you ever do those wall seats where you squat down against a wall? Everybody looks good for about 30 seconds. And then muscles start burning you forgot you even had. And so what, what Aaron and Hur did is they set Moses down. When you set a grown man down, his shoulders are level with your waist. And so they set him down, and then they could rest his elbows, and he could hold the staff. Now, of course, this is a powerful display of something very important. Joshua wasn't fighting the Amalekites. God was. You can fight like Joshua, but you better pray like Moses. And, and this idea of battle on behalf of the Lord better always be undergirded by the reality that the Lord is the one who does the battle. This is how I fight my battle. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. If you were to transfer this into the New Testament, we know because of the coming of the Messiah, who was, of course, out of the lineage of the people, who did inherit the promised land, according to the redemptive plan, Christ has already fought the most important battle. It is a finished 
gospel. When I think about people suffering in my life whom I love, I'm grateful that even as I pray for their healing, I pray for their healing with the understanding that the gospel is finished. That even if God miraculously heals someone, that healing is but a second, a momentary relief of something far greater. The sickest person in our church that receives the most wondrous act of miraculous healing will one day still succumb to death. But the moment any sinner is saved, their eternity is sealed to never experience death again in heaven. And so the finished, completed nature of the gospel means that unlike our Old Testament counterparts, we don't go and fight people violently and physically in the name of God. Now, we believe, and today's not the day to unpack it, but we believe in a just war theology. We understand that God gives nations and that nations have the right to defend themselves and nations have the right to liberate the unpressed. But it's important to recognize that what took place here was to show all of us that when we find ourselves in a battle, our connectedness to God is far more important than the aggression we display in the face of our enemy. This is why the writer of Hebrews says this, let us with, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So before you start fighting, start praying. But before you start going and righting every wrong you see, make sure you're before the Lord letting him right the wrongs in you. If you'll be much with God, God will make you much with men. If you're where you need to be privately, you'll be what you need to be publicly. This is the point. And so right after this battle where Moses' inability is shown, Moses' weakness is shown, this mighty man of God who God used to split the Red Sea just like every man and woman in this room has a limit to the strength of his shoulders, of his biceps, of his triceps, of his forearms, and of his hands, and quickly we are seeing it's going to take more than one person to win this battle, do we find ourselves in the next scene? After this scene closes, the Bible says in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. By the way, you're reading that book. Write this in a memorial to the, in, and recite it to the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Man, there's, it's so good. We could spend an hour on that. Basically, he's saying, he's my flag. He's my signal. In other words, when I want to raise a symbol of everything I believe in, it is the Lord. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And guess what happens under the leadership of David? The Amalekites are completely wiped off the face of the earth. This prophecy comes true hundreds of years later. And then the second scene is really about kingdom fruit. Close to the Amalekites are the Midianites. They're nomadic people. Remember who was a Midianite? Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Now, remember Jethro's role in the Exodus? Moses receives a word from the burning bush 
God calls him, but Moses, out of respect for his position in Jethro's home, out of the fact that he married Jethro's daughter, goes and in Exodus 4.18, went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now, the interesting thing is, we know that Moses becomes a great man of God. But Jethro was already a priest in his own right. He would not have been a priest of Yahweh. He was a Midianite priest, a pagan priest. Jethro did not know Yahweh. Jethro did not know the Lord, but he knew enough to know that if Moses, God, had called him, he ought to let Moses go. And so Jethro disappears from the narrative up until now. Now, word got around back then, not nearly as fast as it does today, but most people believe that by this point, when you have a major civilization like Egypt, see its entire enslaved workforce leave through the splitting of a massive sea, I'm going to tell somebody about that. That probably made the gossip chain. I mean, that got tweeted out quickly. So Jethro, no doubt, had had opportunity to hear something's going on. Moses has become a great leader, and a group of people are heading in my direction. What direction? Toward the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Well, how did Jethro know where Mount Sinai was? I'll tell you how. Where did the burning bush occur? On Mount Sinai. Why was Moses on Mount Sinai? Watching Jethro's sheep. Jethro knew where he sent Moses to graze his sheep. He knew the area, and so he shows back up. And what we find is no sooner have the Amalekites been defeated that God saved a Midianite. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with their two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came in with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God, remember? And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses, watch this now, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Do you ever notice what Moses didn't say? He did not tell his father-in-law all that he had done. You ever felt pressure to impress your father-in-law? My father-in-law's quiet man, very intelligent, incredibly godly, but he's quiet. I think I was 15 years in and three kids by his daughter before I decided whether or not he liked me. <laughs> and I actually think it could go either way, depending on the day. And now I'm old enough to know it's not about him. It's just that some days I'm not very likable. We all want to impress our family members, especially someone who gives us their daughter in marriage, Right? This is why I want to be fearful of every young man in and around my daughters. I don't want them to like me. I want them to be fearful of me. I don't want them to even think there is within the realm of universe of possibilities the chance that they should even approach my daughter with affection. Amen. <laughs> I, 
I have told my daughters, I do not believe in arranged marriage. She can marry any man she pleases of the five I pre-select at her 25th birthday. <laughs> if that sounds cultic, I'm sorry. The truth is, Moses begins to talk about what God had done. Believe it or not, this is one of the best little paragraphs in your Old Testament about how evangelism should work. You know, the vast majority of Christians readily admit that they not only are nervous, they feel inept at sharing their faith. Statistically, people who study evangelism say the percentage of Christians who ever lead another person to Christ is in the single digits. Now, now, whenever I preach on evangelism, the first thing I always remind people is that if we just beat you down and crush you to the point that you feel inadequate, then we've not helped the cause. One of the greatest ways to learn to share your faith is to remember what God has called you to do and what not to do. N number one, God's not called you to save people. You, you, you're not the Holy Spirit. I say this to you quite often because... I believe that there is a supernatural, powerful thing that must happen in someone's life. And that if humans get too involved in manipulating that, then folks walk around with a false sense of security. But God has called you to make much of him. Now, now notice what happens in this passage. I, I love the way it begins with love. The scripture says, and when he, when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, verse 6, am coming to you with your wife and two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. That in and of itself is powerful because as a man of honor, it would have been understood that Moses would wait in the tent. You come to him, I don't go to you. Many of you send your children off to run toward their grandparents. You don't expect the grandparents to run toward the child. It is an honor and a respect thing. And yet Moses blows through all of that. It reminds me of the prodigal son's father who ran toward him when the prodigal son was the one who should have graveled and crawled back in humility. And Moses went out and he bowed in honor and he kissed Jethro. There was much affection. And then the scripture literally says he asked about Jethro's life. There was this idea that Moses led with love and then he spoke truth. My goodness, that's powerful. He loved the person first and then by loving them, he earned the right to speak the truth of God. Love is not the absence of truth, but truth without love is nothing more than legalistic judgmentalism. And so look what the scripture says in verse nine, or rather verse eight. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for the Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them and the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced. Moses didn't say a word about what he'd accomplished. He said, let me tell you what God did. God did this. God did that. God did this. And Jethro already is beginning to exercise faith. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to Jethro's proclamation of faith. Verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in his affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before the Lord. It is an Old Testament picture of what happens in someone's life when they become convinced that the God of heaven is the true living God. I love the parallels between what we see happening here and what we see happening even in New Testament accounts. As soon as Jethro professed his faith, what did they do? They worshiped with burnt offering and they broke bread together. What did Zacchaeus do when Jesus welcomed him into the kingdom? Zacchaeus said, come to my home and let's break bread together. In fact, Jesus caught flack for eating with those who were determined to be unclean. And Jesus would say over and over, it's certainly recorded in the Scriptures, I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for the unrighteous. Just a word about reaching our community for Christ. Nobody cares what you believe about Jesus until you love him. Until you love him. If you want your lost friends to sit beside you in church one day and offer a sacrifice of praise, have them sit at your kitchen table and offer them a warm meal. Love them before you demand them to love you or to love your God. Don't compromise. There are certain places that lost people gather, I can't go. There are certain ceremonies that lost people participate in, I cannot participate in. But the truth is, I have a kitchen table. I have a front porch, I have a tailgate, I have a bleacher at a ball game, I have a break room at work. There are places in your life and in my life where we can be a soft spot, a spot of warmth and grace to genuinely take an interest in people. Let me say something at the risk of offending you. It's harder than it looks because it's easier to love people who think like you, look like you, talk like you, and have your same values. It's hard to really love people whose world is not aligned with your loyalties and your allegiance. And you can't love them all. God's not asked you to go reach hundreds of thousands. One or two people in your life that do not know the Lord, that you have influence over, could it be even this year? We're only a month and a half in, almost two months in, what if you begin praying about that person's soul every day and then you intentionally made room in your life to love and encourage and speak grace into them? M may not see fruit for weeks, even months, but at the end of the day, what you'll find is that the more you make room to love people who are hard to love, the more there will be opportunities to speak the truth of the gospel into their life. And notice the beautiful opposites. As the kingdom of God grows, there are going to be battles, but there's also going to be fruit. There'll be people who die opposing God, and there'll be people who die to self and come to love God. And right after this miracle of bread, we see kingdom battle and kingdom fruit, which sets the stage for kingdom leadership. Jethro had a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom. Moses had a problem. And I'd like to close this morning 
by looking at this and offering you some truths for your life. But before I offer you a single word about leadership, we got to deal with a false statement, a myth. Here it is. This is a myth. This is not true. It's not true for any Christian to say, I am not a leader. I hear that a lot. Preacher, I'm not a leader. I'm a follower. I, I, I don't want to be a chief. I'm an Indian. I want to serve. I, I want to do what other people tell me to do. Preacher, I'm just a foot washer. I just want to find needs. I am not a leader. That's a lie. A Christian, any Christian, at bare minimum has three assignments of leadership. One is in your home. If you are a man in this room, and you have or plan to take a wife, you're a leader. And if you are a woman in this room, and by God's grace, he gives you the opportunity to be a mother, whether it be through birth or foster or adoption, you are a leader and a nurturer of hearts. So a man is to lead his family, a man and woman are to lead their children. So every person in the room is a leader at home. Secondly, you're a leader at church. You may say, I'm not a leader. I'm the one listening to you today. You're the leader. I'm not the leader. Well, what do our leaders tell us? Well, what the main leader told us, what did Jesus say? Go you therefore and make disciples. You know how you make a disciple? Well, there's a lot to say about it, but you basically use your life to lead another person to grow in their faith. Now, there's a lots of ways you can do it. Remember what Paul said right after that famous verse, everybody in the room at some point has tried to memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer yourself as living sacrifices. But, but when you get down to verse 3, you know why he says that? He says, for by grace given to me, I say everyone, that's you, that's me, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, so be humble, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, be honest with where you are, who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses. Why? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, still speaking in the plural, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You belong to me, I belong to you. Having gifts that differ, your gifts may be different than my gifts, According to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to prophecy in faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul says, everybody has gifts and abilities and we ought to use them. And when you use them, Though it may look like service, you're ultimately leading other people. There's one more assignment. It's the world. I don't know that I've ever met a Christian that would disagree with this statement. If you are a Christian, you should be willing to lead other, peoples to Christ, lead other people to Christ. We just talked about evangelism, right? That looks different. I've known some people who are powerful at building one-on-one -on -one relationships. I've known others who are great preachers of the gospel. They speak to many people. But the point is, is that every woman in this room who's a Christian, every man in this room who's a Christian, has at least three minimum assignments. You are to lead in your home, you are to lead in your church, and you are to lead others around you to see and know the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm about to teach you is for you. It's not just for your small group leader or your boss. 
Ladies, it's not just for your husband. Young people, it's not just for your parents because soon you will be parents. It's for all of us. And it's five simple truths. I want you to jot them down as we close. And it comes as Moses is overwhelmed. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 10. Verse 10. No, verse 13. It's a sinus medicine affecting me. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing the people, he said, what is that? What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, now listen, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Five truths. Number one, here he goes. Leadership demands limitations. It's a simple lesson. Leadership demands limitations. Think about the battle. Moses couldn't hold up the staff. Think about Jethro. Moses couldn't lead him to the Lord by his own power. Think about this moment. What's the leadership lesson? You can't do it alone. You know the number one thing people say to me when I ask them how they're doing? I'm just tired. I'm tired. One of the ways that we can lead to exhaustion is by recognizing that we have, not recognizing that we have limits. The most effective leaders I've ever studied were masters at saying no so that they could say yes to the things God had called them to. See, one of the misconceptions of leaders is that some of you don't think you're a leader because you put other leaders who are more public than you on a pedestal and you say, look at all she can do. Look at all he can do. I can't do any of those things. I must not be a leader. I'll just be a follower. I'll blend in. I'll take a back seat. I'll support. I'll clap. I'll pray. I'll encourage. But don't put me in front of anything to lead. What you don't realize is whomever you've placed on the pedestal, that man or that woman that you admire, I can assure you they have massive limitations. In fact, one of the best ways to limit anything in your life is to try to do it all yourself. This, of course, was the problem with Moses. And Jethro said, this is not good, <coughs> which leads to the second truth. Limitations demand delegation. Look at verse 19. It falls out beautifully. He says this, now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes of the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men. So Jethro says, Moses, what you're doing's not wrong. Your desire's good. In fact, if you'll do what I'll tell you, You'll keep doing what God's called you to do at greater effectiveness when you stop trying to do it on your own. Leadership lesson number one, you can't do it alone. Leadership lesson number two is even more simple. You shouldn't do it all. You should give it away. Not only can you not do it, you should not do it. You have to delegate. You have to find ways to empower other people. Let me give you an example. Some of you in this room 
teach our students and children on Wednesday nights. Others of you in this room may lead a Bible study. Some of you may be a part of our worship ministry. Some of you may usher, you may greet, you may provide security. Others of you may be the point person that's been identified to lead a mission trip this year. That's wonderful. You know the greatest thing you can do for our church is to fulfill your role faithfully and then replace yourself. Because for every teacher of young people we have at Church at the Mill, we need another one. For every person who's willing to lead a mission trip, we need another one. For every singer on this stage, we need another one. For every person that knows how to go into their workplace and lead a Bible study, you need to lead someone else in your workplace to know how to lead a Bible study. The measure of leadership is not how much you do, it's how much others do because you came into their life. And this, of course, leads to the third principle. If, if limitation demands delegation, delegation demands identification. So here's the truth. It matters who you choose. It matters who you choose. It matters. And look how it says that in the text, beginning in verse 21. Moreover, look for able-bodied men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. Jethro said, Moses, I want you to look for three things. You can jot these down. Ability, humility, and integrity. Show me a woman who's able. Show me a man who fears God and there's a genuine humility about the way he carries himself. And show me a person who cares about their private life being in line with God as much as they do their public title. I'll show you someone who can be trusted to lead. And by the way, you may say, Pastor, I feel like I'm the person that needs to be tapped. I would love for a leader to come along and empower me and, and, and push me. I, I, I've too often hid behind my own shyness or my lack of education or my newfound faith. And I, I, I'm being inspired by this word, Pastor. I would like to be a leader. Well, focus on this. Develop your ability. Search God for humility and make sure there's integrity. I tell the pastors often, stay holy, stay humble, and stay hungry. Stay holy, stay humble, and stay hungry. And when you do that, you'd be amazed at what God will entrust you with. So when you identify those people, identification then fourthly demands implementation. You gotta let them lead. You got to release them to lead, and that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 21. This is so good, so practical. Let's start with the third phrase of verse 21. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Church family, I have watched people burn themselves out because they led as if they were earning the love of God. Can I tell you, I do not pastor this church to earn the love of God. He loved me when I was a knucklehead and still does. I do not, nor does any leader, find effectiveness by doing what they do out of a burden to get God to like you. In fact, no, we do our best leadership when we lead from having been loved, when we're confident in what God has done, when we're keenly aware of what we cannot do. Usually I remind people when we add them to the team, hang around me long enough, I will underwhelm you. 
I will fail you. You're going to fail me. That's why I'm so thankful that the gospel is not built on human effectiveness or tricks of the trade or innovation. No. But you do have to entrust people. And notice how we did it. With thousands, hundreds, fifties. Not every man that can lead 50 can lead 1,000. Not every woman that can lead 1,000 is good at 50. The reality is I have, a, I have a belief that probably the men who led well with 50 got 100 next year. In other words, the Lord often says, I will trust you with a little, and then I'll trust you with a lot. So prove yourself to be faithful in the small things, and then the Lord will expand what you can lead in your life. And this implementation requires great trust, it also required organization and separation. We had to separate the people out, and there had to be a plan and organization around it. I'm always impressed whenever I hear somebody's plan, not because every plan works. Most of mine don't. But it means they took enough time to pray and think and to at least have a plan. The vast majority of churches that are dying in North America don't have a plan. There's no plan. There's no discipleship strategy. There's no effort to develop people. There's no constant push. Why do you think, I believe, and I've shared with you, that we're done here? I don't believe Spartanburg needs a campus with 10,000 people on it. I don't believe God is calling us to build bigger buildings at 4455, but rather it's to send out to these campuses and these church plants and these missionaries to go, to send them out, train them up and send them out, train them up and send them out. This, of course, puts us in a position of doing what? Of delegating, of identifying, of implementing, but finally, implementation, it requires participation. Moses didn't leave his site. He didn't leave his post. In fact, look what the Bible says, how the chapter ends in the last phrase, verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. There's a difference between delegating and abdicating. To abdicate literally means to not fulfill, to walk away from that's not for me. I'm not doing that. I'm not responsible. I told you to do that. Nobody wants to work with or for that person. To delegate, to delegate means to entrust another person, but to not abandon the need to serve beside them. Moses held court and judged as well. He waited on the hard cases as God's anointed prophet. He needed to be the one to speak to those. But he continued to show up and judge just as these people judged. And by the way, this is how Israel is going to be ruled up until Saul is named king, which is why the leaders of the nation of Israel, before they got a king, were called, there's a book, the book of Judges. So to rule and to reign in matters of conflict was to lead and to judge correctly, and Moses formed the foundation of it. And what were the results? Look at verse 23, and we'll close. I love verse 23. Look at verse 23. Jethro says, Moses, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. 
So if you lead this way, God guides. He's got to because you're entrusting other people. You can't be the puppet master. You have to believe in them and that God has called them to lead. Leaders last. This avoids burnout because you reproduce yourself. At the new member class, I always tell people, we'd like for you to find one place to serve in one small group, not nine places to serve. That's a great way to burn out. Find one place to serve and find a small group. We want more people doing more for the kingdom, not fewer people doing too much. And then, of course, people have peace. Their life is an absolute struggle. Cases still kept coming up. Wars are coming. But they knew their leaders would hear them and guide them and lead them according to the statutes of the Word of God. Now, this is a very technical, practical message. This would be great for a leadership conference. But I think I am in one. You're the most important leaders in my life. Your ability to provide leadership in your home, leadership in your life, leadership at work, and leadership in your church directly affects the health and the exponential growth of our church in making disciples. So I got two questions for you. You knew they were coming. Who were you leading? Who were you leading? Are you raising those kids or are you leading them? Are you working beside folks or are you leading them to see Christ in the workplace? Are you teaching and coaching or are you leading students and children to see that there's a difference in your life? Who are you leading and how are you leading? I'll give you a great litmus test. Are there more people leading Christian lives because of you? You've probably received a lot of leadership. Some of you be quick in your humility and say, I don't know where I'd be without the pastors and the small group leaders and the camp counselors and the youth volunteers that have poured into me. Praise God, those people did what they were supposed to do by you. But are you on someone else's list? Are there going to be people at your funeral who say, she might have never had a title. He, he might have never stood on the stage at church. But he led me well in the way that he followed the Lord. He got me involved. He delegated. He pushed me. And he released me to serve. So today's not the day to stand and sing. I'm not asking you to reflect on anything spiritually in prayer. I'm looking at you with my eyes wide open, and I'm telling you that the next step for Church at the Mill and the next step for your life is to become a leader and to lead according to the principles God has given us. I trust the Holy Spirit to honor his word and to show you how to take these truths and apply them to your life. And if you're here today and you're struggling or hurting with something, your need matters. Our prayer room is open. We would love for you to go and speak with a counselor about that. But for many of you, I want you to lead. And I trust that God will show you what that looks like. And by the way, it should go without saying, you are a joy to lead. And I'm thankful for his word over both of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, as we dismiss this service, 
It's really a challenge for leadership. And my prayer this morning is that the men and women in this room would have been convicted and challenged to become more effective leaders in whatever capacity you have determined. There are young people who are feeling a call to ministry and they need to acknowledge that. There are mothers and fathers who are feeling a call to revisit spiritual leadership in the lives of their children. There are men and women who would say, you know, I think I've been a pretty good example at work, but I'm not sure I've been a leader the way I need to be. And tomorrow morning represents a new work week where they can go and lead effectively. And then for all of us, Lord, as we listen to Jethro's confession of faith, it reminds us that if we know the Lord, it's because somebody led us to you. Nobody saved us. There wasn't a preacher, an evangelist, a camp speaker, a Sunday school teacher, a friend, a father, a mother who saved us. But those people were there when we came to faith in you. Lord, how could we not want to be there in that moment for other people? So I pray that every Christian in this room would identify those people who we influence and set apart their name in prayer and decide this year will be a year that I do everything in my power to lead them to my great Savior who loves them and who died for them. Lord, like never before, when I say amen, lead us to become leaders. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.